0: My goal today is to reach the end of Isaiah. Which means that we're kind of going to be doing a bit of an overview of these last chapters, but, but I think I think it's doable because this is really a section that, that fits pretty tightly together. Now, just to just to sort of remind you of what we looked at last week, and last week was a little shorter week because we had the congregational meeting. But um, After we get through the forty through fifty-five, the section where where that's focused on the servant, other things as well, Cyrus and the Lord's sovereignty, but but really uh, the servant becomes the main character. Uh, Once we get through forty to fifty-five, I said that fifty-six through sixty-six is this final section of the book, and and what we primarily looked at last week was the fact that fifty-six through sixty-six gives a portrayal of the people after their redemption. And what we said about these people, I actually stole this from a commentator, but one of the commentators says that these, these people are um, world people, and by that he means they're global, it's not just, it's not just Jews, it's Jews and Gentiles. And they are Sabbath people. We spent a lot of time looking at that. It is prominent in this section. That what marks them off is their genuine um, adherence and love for the Sabbath. And then, and then they're people of prayer because in the midst of their restoration, uh, and, and then as they await their restoration, what these people are doing is they're they're imploring God for to restore them. And then after they're restored, they're thanking God for the restoration. So they're They're directing their communication, as it were, primarily to God. So, those are the three markers that we looked at for uh, these people. And we're going to kind of revisit that at the end the question of what are the people, what do the people look like. But those three things were useful for us to try to understand what's going on in particularly uh, 56, 57, 58. They are global people. Sabbath people and people of prayer. Now, in, the, um, in this next little bit of the of the of this last section, we return once again, and it's interesting to think about how this always happens in Isaiah. We return once again to a portrayal of the Messiah. Now, if you think about it, in the in the earliest chapters, in the first section of Isaiah one through uh, one through twelve, what we find is there's this portrayal of the Messiah as a, a child, uh, he's also called the branch. I mean, there are different terms given, but that's the portrayal, that he's kind of, he's going to come up and in the midst of destruction and in the midst of exile. And there is a little bit in Isaiah chapter 9 about how he's going to be uh, this conquering king, but that's not the emphasis in those chapters. Uh, even, even in Isaiah 9, where it does say the government will rest on the shoulders, It's his name is called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And so that's that's the so the the, the Messiah is prominent in that section. Then we've seen that the Messiah is prominent again in 40 through 55. And if we were to give a label to him there, we would say the Messiah in 40 through 55 is is very much portrayed as a as the servant. In fact, that's the that's the moniker he's given. But not just any servant, we learn in 53, he's a suffering servant who takes the sins of the people upon himself. And that is critically important, in fact, really one of the high points of Isaiah, because it answers all the questions about how he's going to bring about restoration. Now, no surprise then, that in this last section, 56 through 66, um, what we have is another portrait of the Messiah in the... It right in the center of the whole thing. And it really comes in, uh, beginning in chapter 59, the middle of chapter 59, and then um, goes on through, really through 63. But let's look at it a little bit. Let's just look at, at what is said about this Messiah and what, it, what is emphasized about him. So at the time of restoration, what's going, to, what's going to happen? Well, look at the middle of verse 15 in Isaiah 59. Um, he's just been describing the time in which uh, in which they lived this time and this time that requires judgment, and it says the Lord saw it, and it displeased him that there was no justice. He saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no one to intercede. Then his own arm brought him salvation, and his righteousness upheld him. He put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head, he put on garments of vengeance for clothing wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak according to their deeds, so he will repay them, wrath to his adversaries, repayment to his enemies, to the coastlands he will render repayment, so they shall fear the name of the Lord from the west, and his glory from the rising of the sun, for he will come like a rushing stream, which the wind of the Lord drives, and I'm going to read into verse 20, and a redeemer will come to Zion, to those in Jacob who turn from transgression, declares the Lord. Now, this is This is significant because what we see is in this last section, the final restoration of God's people, when they are fully transformed from being this um, uh, unfaithful city at the beginning of the book to the faithful city that we see at the end of the book, that that restoration, we know the center point of that restoration is the substitutionary work of the Messiah based on 53, the suffering servant. But now we see that also what's going to happen is God Himself is going to, with His right arm, as it were, come and rescue His people and bring about judgment. So that's the focus. That there's this anointed—I'll say anointed—because He is. The word is used, an anointed conqueror. Is it er, yeah. Um, who is who is kind of the 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 main character in? in this last section. And the restoration of the people of God, just like the sustenance of the people of God, just like the hope of the people of God, are all wrapped up in this one coming figure. In this case, he's presented as an anointed conqueror, um, a a kind of conquering king. Now, a couple things just to note in this section that I read in 59. You probably recognized a few of these verses, or a few of them at least sounded familiar to you. Um, One of the most... Kind of prominent things that may have stuck out is in verse 17 when it talks about righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. Two places where that comes up. Uh, one, it comes up as a description of the return of the Messiah as a conqueror, and in the description of the return of Christ, we see this language employed to describe him which makes sense because this is talking about an anointed conquering king at the end. So it makes sense that the book of Revelation will pick up on that. What's interesting as well, though, of course, and this might even be more familiar or really have have rung a, a, a bell even more clearly in your mind, is this is the same language that Paul uses in Ephesians 6 when he talks about us putting on the whole armor of God. So what you see is that armor of God that Paul portrays you know, and delineates in detail in Ephesians chapter 6, is not simply, um, he didn't just, he's not just pulling it out of thin air and assigning certain uh, characteristics to various parts of the armor. What he's actually doing is he's he's reminding us of an Old Testament Christological reference. And that Old Testament Christological reference not only is applied to us today— But it's applied, or it's not applied, but it's fulfilled in in the second coming of Christ. So, in other words, in other words, one way of understanding Ephesians six, although this is, I'm I'm not trying to flatten it out, the details matter. But one way of understanding Ephesians six is that what Paul is saying is exactly what he says. For instance, in Colossians three, where he says, "Put on Christ," because because really the whole nature of our sanctification. And the nature of our fight against sin and our fight against the world, the flesh, and the devil is wrapped up in the fact, and we've seen this in Isaiah, so I'm not just importing Pauline theology here, we've seen it in Isaiah, is wrapped up in the fact that we are united to Christ and that what it means to be a Christian fundamentally is that we are joined together through faith with Jesus Christ. And so what Paul is doing in Ephesians 6 in a in you know, a fairly specific way, is really unpacking the significance of that based on what we know of Christ in the Old Testament. And we can see um, this, this kind of thing, uh, this kind of language being used if you just look further in 59. Because look at what he does. As for me, this is my covenant with them, says Yahweh, my spirit that is upon you. And my words that I have put in your mouth shall not depart out of your mouth or out of the mouth of your offspring or out of the mouth of your children's offspring, says the Lord, from this time forth and forevermore. So what's the, you know, this is this, is this un, unusual feature of Isaiah that we really don't get anywhere else in the Old Testament. I've said it before, but just at the risk of repeating myself here, usually the covenant is an agreement it's an agreement here between two parties that is um, that is uh, uh, sort of stands apart from each of them, um, and, and they're both agreeing. And this is how they this is how they engage in a relationship by means of the terms of the covenant. But what we see in Isaiah, somewhat well, I think not somewhat, I think uniquely in Isaiah, but then this has a trajectory into the New Testament is that. Isaiah will toggle back and forth between describing the covenant as what we normally think of this agreement that binds them together, to actually being personified in the in the coming anointed one. So remember, in uh, back in, in in the Second Servant Song, uh, he says, "You are the covenant. I'm I'm, I'm bringing you as a covenant as." Yahweh speaks to the Messiah. You're the covenant. And and we talked about that in a little more detail back then. That was something that I think uh, theologians in the early church understood well when they said things like, Jesus Christ is the new covenant. You go, well, hold on a sec. I thought the new covenant was this separate thing. Well, yes, the Bible does describe the new covenant in those terms, but then the Bible also describes the new covenant simply personified in Christ. Which, again, brings us back to what I was just saying, and and it makes sense as to why Paul will apply this Messianic language in 17 to us today with respect to our sanctification. Because, again, it's it's all wrapped up. Our sanctification and our growth in holiness is all wrapped up in our union with Christ. And our participation in the New Covenant promises... Is really a participation in Christ, and it's in Christ that we receive those promises, and it's in Christ that those promises become yes for us. Um, and so, again, union with Christ is at the at the heart of what it means to to be saved. Now, um, it, it, still with me? Okay. Questions or comments or pushback or anything? Okay. All right. So then, let's let's go forward a little bit, and um, and and I'll just summarize in some respects um, much of what we see in chapter sixty and sixty-one. So in sixty and sixty-one, what we see is this because of the coming of this anointed conqueror, who himself is the covenant and all of that stuff we just said, but because due to the coming of this anointed conqueror, then what we have is this glorious picture of restoration for the people. So if you you only have time for one answer, one Isaiah answer for how the city moves from unfaithful in the first chapters to faithful in the end, if you only can give one answer to that question, you have to say it's because of God's Messiah. It's because of the because and, and, and note of course it the Lord identifies himself with the Messiah because of the divine human Messiah that God sends that's what deals with their sin problem that's what deals with their enemies that's what that's that's how God actually restores them and causes them to grow spiritually and be changed and that's how he pours out his spirit upon them everything everything that you need every sort of um, secondary thing that that that's required for them to move from unfaithful to faithful happens through him. Now, if you had a longer answer, of course, you could talk about the Babylonian exile. You could talk about the um, uh, the coming of Cyrus and their physical return in part and all that stuff. I mean, there are there are a lot of historical steps along the way. But the but the answer that Isaiah keeps coming back to is this messianic answer, which is why Isaiah is often referred to as the fifth gospel because so much of what he writes centers on, on the work of the Messiah. Now, um, so that's 60 and 61, and uh, what, what's going to then happen is that the Lord is going to bring about salvation. This is really what 62 is about. Um, it, the, 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 the Lord has, I'll just pick up in verse 8, the Lord has sworn by his right hand And by his mighty arm, I will not again give your grain to be food for your enemies. Foreigners shall not drink your wine for which you have labored. But those who garner it shall eat it and praise the Lord. And those who gather it shall drink it in the courts of my sanctuary. And then if you go to um, verse 11, it says, Behold, the Lord has proclaimed to the end of the earth, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your salvation comes. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense uh, before him. And then, and, and, and by the way, this is picked up in Matthew 21 and in John 12 when they're describing the work of the, of the Lord. So th- that, that last little phrase might again be familiar to you because it is quoted in the Gospels to talk about the coming of Christ. And they shall be called the holy people, the redeemed of the Lord, and you shall be called sought out a city not forsaken, which is the opposite of what he said at the beginning. They are a city that is forsaken. Now, um, 63 then is going to, again, describe the conqueror in some detail, particularly in the first six um, verses. What I will say, I'll just read verse 6, but what I'll say is if you want New Testament parallels for 63, 1 through 6, you need to go to revelation because it's picked up on consistently there when describing the coming judgment of the Lord so for instance you know tre- treading verse three treading the wine press of his wrath um but look at verse six I trampled down the peoples in my anger I made them drunk in my wrath and I poured out their lifeblood on the earth and 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 when you read John's prophecies in Revelation about future judgment and the work of Christ what you see is it's it's Isaiah 63 language in fact the whole middle section of Revelation is kind of orchestrated around this treading of the winepress of God's wrath and, and what John does through the revelation he receives from God is John simply expands upon that pulls in other old testament texts to kind of collate them but but it's the the framework is the Isaiah 63 framework. So what now I don't think Isaiah this is worth reminding ourselves of we've talked about it a few times throughout our study but I don't think Isaiah fully grasped the way in which all of this fit together. So what I mean is and 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 I've cited this before so again forgive me but Peter says the prophets made careful searches and inquiries as to the time which the Spirit of Christ within them was was, uh, prophesying when when they received these prophecies about the suffering and the glory to follow. In other words, what what Peter says is the prophets couldn't quite untangle, and you can see this in Isaiah, how the suffering was going to be connected with the, the glory and the judgment and all of that. And... And so I don't want to, I want to read Isaiah on his own terms and say, for us, it's relatively straightforward, and Peter even says this, it was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but they were serving us, upon whom the end of the ages has fallen. So we, for us, it's it's relatively straightforward for us to look at, at Isaiah and his picture of the Messiah and to say, okay, what we're what we have here is the picture of the birth of the Messiah, we have the picture of the 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 work and the the life and the death of the Messiah, substitutionary death, and then we have this picture of the return uh, in in conquering glory. But that that distance between between the first advent and the second advent, which for us is somewhat obvious, uh, but that distance I don't think was totally obvious to Isaiah, and, and certainly wouldn't have been obvious to his listeners as well. So. There is a kind of mystery involved in this prophecy because Isaiah has just prophesied that the Messiah is going to be killed. He had no stately form or majesty, and he was crushed for our iniquities. And now he's coming and saying, this is the one who's going to conquer, this is the one who's going to to destroy all his enemies. So you can understand why in the intertestamental period they were unclear about this and they they in some cases posited two separate messiah two different messiahs messiah a who suffers messiah b who comes in glory and you can even you can even begin to understand why in the gospels there were some people not least the disciples who kind of sidelined the suffering part they could, because because it just didn't fit with all of these passages which were very familiar to them like isaiah 63 about the Messiah coming in glory and destroying his enemies, so you can you can see why their natural conclusion when they when they reached a point where they said, "Okay, we believe Jesus is the Messiah," their natural conclusion from that was, "Okay, we must be going into Jerusalem to destroy our enemies. He must be ready to take over Jerusalem and to, and to throw throw the Romans out and to enact some new kingdom right then." And Jesus repeatedly tells them that's not true but and, and and tells them that they just misunderstood the scriptures they didn't believe the scriptures but but you can you can sort of relate to them if you take Isaiah on his own terms because he does have these very different looking portraits of the same person uh, again and again in in, in the book now. That takes us into the prayer that, that um, God's people are giving in the, in the meantime, which really begins in the middle of 63. And, um, and what he, what, what this, what, again, these are, remember, uh, global people, Sabbath people, people of prayer. So, so this is the big prayer. And the big prayer is, okay, Lord, um, this is what you're going to do. Please come and do it. Now, now remember, this is being prophesied to them before they even have been taken into exile. But, but Isaiah has told them, you're going into exile. So, I mean, it's a done deal. But in the midst of all of that, this is sort of the cry of God's people as they're heading into exile, and then especially when they're in exile. This is the cry of God's people. If you're genuinely a believer in the midst of exile, and there were believers, of course, in the midst of exile. There was always a remnant. Isaiah tells us that. But if you're part of this remnant people in the midst of exile, what are you doing? You're crying out to God to actually to do this, to bring this about, to bring about your salvation. And you remember, of course, uh, this was uh, something that Dr. Phillips preached on uh, uh, in December, if you remember even the the rejoicing that took place among those who first saw the Messiah and understood who he was who so first saw Jesus and they understood who he was because for them this was the answer to their prayers our salvation is here now whether they understood again first advent second advent you know it's hard to say uh, we we know that many of them struggle to understand that but Nonetheless, they knew if this is the Messiah, then what we've been praying for for hundreds of years, going back to even before the exile, is actually coming about. Because the center of God's redemption is going to be this this coming Messiah. So, um, we get this great prayer. And let me just read the end of it, uh, which is in 64, 8 through 12. But there's a whole long prayer before it. I don't want to just... Forget about that. But let me read this end part. But now, O Lord, you are our Father. We are the clay and you are our potter. We are all the work of your hand. Be not so terribly angry, O Lord, and remember not iniquity forever. But behold, please look, we are all your people. Your holy cities have become a wilderness. Zion has become a wilderness. Jerusalem, a desolation. Our holy and beautiful house where our fathers praised you has been burned by fire and all our pleasant places have become ruins will you restrain yourself at these things o lord will you keep silent and afflict us so terribly and the answer comes in chapter 65 because the answer that the lord gives is okay i'm going to i'm going to create a new heavens and a new earth and, and that's what 65 outlines. This new heavens and new earth. Again, this is all picked up on in, in Revelation as well. But it's also found in the other prophetic books. This wonderful provision um, for his people where they're, they're settled, they're safe, they're at peace both with one another and with him. And, and, and this is the way he summarizes it. In verses 17 and 18 of 65. For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth. The former things shall not be remembered um, or come into mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be a gladness. Yes? With the judgment that Isaiah talks about, I mean, was he directly talking about the Messiah's second coming? I think he was, yes. In this section, I think he is, but I don't think Isaiah was aware of the first and second coming per se. I mean, I don't know for sure, but based on what Peter says, the prophets really didn't understand that. The sufferings and the glory. So what we think of as first or second coming. So the answer to your question is yes, he is, I believe, talking here in this last section about the second coming. But for him, that might have been just merged together. In his mind, and and the analogy I've given before, whether it's it's not a perfect analogy, but the analogy I've given before is you know you're you're driving towards the mountains and they look like they're connected. It looks like you could just walk across them, and you get there and you realize oh there's fifty miles between them. And I and I see the prophets as being you know a hundred miles from the mountains, but they're seeing it, and and what they're saying is true, and the way they're saying it. Is, is accurate, but what they don't see is that gap. So they see this kind of messianic mountain, and it looks like one range, but then you realize, oh, it's actually two. Does that make sense? And is that why, like, the disciples thought maybe they're going to actually I think that's exactly right. Yeah, I think that's why they thought that. I mean, the disciples... So a lot of people didn't believe Jesus was the Messiah at all. So... Uh, The Lord worked, opened the disciples' eyes. They knew he was the Messiah. But yeah, I think that's exactly right. Because if you look at every place where they say, you are the Christ, you are the Messiah. um, The next thing they talk about is glory and uh, the Romans and picking up swords. And okay, I I think we understand now why we're headed to Jerusalem, but let's prepare ourselves um, militarily. So yeah, that's exactly right. Because for them, that was a straight line. Now again, I want to emphasize, Jesus doesn't say, um, well, of of course you couldn't understand this. Even though I'm not sure Isaiah understood it. Jesus always says, "You you need to go back and read the scriptures. And remember when he appears to those two disciples in Luke 24, and they say, we thought he was the one to redeem Israel, but he's been dead three days. And Jesus says, how slow of heart did you not... Did, did you not know that the son, the, the son, uh, or the Messiah, Christ—that is, the that Christ—had to die, and after three days, be raised from the dead? And so they just—they just, they just screened that out of their reading, um, for whatever reason. So, does that make sense? Yeah, that's a great question. Yeah, that's exactly what I think is going on, um, because they're reading. And, and the truth is, just again, to to give give our due to them, and to give a, a degree of credit to them. The truth of the matter is, if you lined up all the Messianic passages from the Old Testament and just kind of just kind of listed them all out, there would be far more that have to do with conquering, destruction of the enemies, this kind of end of Isaiah stuff. There, there's way more of those than there are suffering, death, you know, atonement kinds of texts. So... You know, it's somewhat understandable that if you're going to... I mean, there were probably triumphalistic and sinful reasons why they did this as well, but even if you just sort of stack them next to each other, he looks more like a conquering warrior than he does like a suffering servant. Although Isaiah, of course, in that servant section, that's why 40 to 55 is so critical. Because in that suffering, in that 40 to 55, it's really clear... He is suffering, and and then in fifty three we learn why he's suffering. But even earlier in the earlier servant songs, he's he's dejected. He's you know I've I've, I've I'm worn out. I've spent myself, and and that that's a really different image of the Messiah that we get elsewhere. All right, so good. Qu- qu- any other questions? That's a, that was a great point. Any other questions? Okay, then let's let's just kind of ask one more, one more question of the text. Um, let see if I can pull this up. One more question of the text that's, that's really relevant here, which is, and this is the, the, the last thing I really want to address today, which is, all right, what, what's the application of all this for, for the people in Isaiah's day? because, because it would be easy it's always easy for god's people or it's always a temptation i should say for god's people to say well all right god's going to do that in the future i guess i believe that it's hard for me to imagine but all right that's what he's going to do in the future and so so do i just sort of go on and wait for that to happen and you know what in other words what this is the big question, and it's actually the, the question in some ways that the New Testament answers for us. But Isaiah 66 answers it for his people and for us as well. Which is, what does it look like to live between um, between promise and fulfillment? Now, Now, for Isaiah... And, and the people of his day, the promises included the promises of the first coming. Okay, so they hadn't even seen that. We are um, on the other side of that, and and the, the apostles say we're we're the in the end of the ages. We're in the last days, and we're in the last days because we're on the other side of that first coming, that first advent. The death, resurrection of Jesus, and the ascension of Jesus into heaven. So they were, they were, they had a lot more promises and a lot less fulfillment. But nonetheless, we're still in this same spot. Because just like the people in the Old Testament, just like believers in the Old Testament, we have these promises and we're awaiting for them to be fulfilled. Which is why, in the New Testament, it can both say. You're in the last days, the end of the ages has fallen on you, but also say, you're aliens and strangers. You, you, you look back to Abraham, who's a pilgrim, looking for a city whose builder and maker was God, and you're in that same position. Because fundamentally, we are a pilgrim people, we are aliens and strangers, we do have a citizenship that's not here on earth, because what does it say, your citizenship is in heaven? From whom you await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. So so that posture never changes for God's people throughout the whole Bible. Whether you're talking about Adam and Eve as soon as they leave the garden, or us today. We've seen the fulfillment of a, a lot of promises that they looked forward to for centuries. But nonetheless, we live between promise and fulfillment. That's our, this is our, this is where we are. So the question, so, so I, I say all that to say what Isaiah says to those people awaiting promise and fulfillment is also what he would say to us between promise and fulfillment. And what does he say? Well, let's look at this. Um, 66, 1 and 2. Thus says the Lord, Heaven is my throne, the earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me? And what is the place of my rest? All these things my hand has made, and so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. But this is the one to whom I will look, he who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. Now, This is is among the final, this is basically the final sermon of Isaiah, his last sermon. And and, and it's kind of the the big, how do I live in light of everything you've said? If I believe everything you've said, Isaiah, and it's confusing and I can't quite piece it all together. But if that's true, then what am I supposed to do? And, and, And an answer might be, well, what we need is we need a new temple. And it, later on in the chapter, he talks about sacrifices and that kind of a thing. But what, what the Lord says is this. There's not a house you're going to build for my name in this in-between period. That's not how it works. Heaven is my throne. I own everything. I mean, think back to Isaiah 40. Remember in Isaiah 40, when he says things like, you know, the heavens are just, it's like a drop in the bucket. And the entire span of space, whatever that is—fifty-five billion light years or whatever—is just like this is like the this for me. So, so in other words, I'm far, far greater than anything you can imagine or envision. Heaven is my throne; the earth is my footstool. So, every place you've ever visited on planet Earth, every place you want to visit on planet Earth—that you know—is on your you know your list of, of places that you want to get to. All of that every place that you've been that no one else has, whatever you name it it's just it's just the footstool of God the whole earth so what you're not going to do is contain him in a place that's not how it works but and so so that would so verse one would almost leave you with a sense of you know uh, despair well if that's the God we're talking about then what can I possibly do? How can I possibly live in such a way to be pleasing to him? And this is then the answer that the Lord gives. But to this one I will look. And what is he looking for? He's looking for, he says, the one who is humble. This is middle of verse two. And contrite in spirit and who trembles at my word. Now, um, think about that. The kind of person that the Lord is looking to is someone, first of all, who's characterized by an appropriate humility in light of the greatness of God and his obligations uh, toward other people. So, you know, it's interesting, too, because actually, if you look at this word, we think of humility in terms of... um, a certain cast of mind or cast of your heart where you look at yourself and others in a certain way. You're there to serve them. But actually, and it can mean that, but actually it also can mean someone who has been humbled. In other words, in other words, it's, it's what Jesus says at the beginning of the, the Beatitudes. Um, Blessed are the, the poor in spirit, for they will see God. The way to approach God, Isaiah says... The way to um, relate to God is by recognizing rightly your own position in relation to him. Being both humble towards others, but also humbled with respect to him. That's the one to whom the Lord looks. The Lord doesn't look to the proud. The Lord doesn't look to the one who is standing on his own accomplishments or coming in his own strength or on the basis of his own works or on the basis of his own uh, family lineage, or whatever else we might do, uh, the, the things we might do to stack up points for ourselves, that's that's not the one to whom he looks. The one to whom he looks is the one who is humble before him. Contrite of spirit means much the same thing. That word contrite means strict, stricken down, smitten down. Uh, it's used, in fact, sometimes in military context for someone who's been, who's been taken out by the enemy. So what's the Lord looking for? What's the Lord looking for now, as we wait between promise and fulfillment, and what was he looking for then? He's looking for humility, and he's looking for those who are struck down in their spirit. In other words, it's it's a it, it, I can't help but think of the words of the hymn writer. He says, nothing in my hands I bring. That's the idea behind Isaiah 66 six two, And then there's that little addition to it, which is so significant. And the little addition is... Um, He trembles at my word. Because what you have, and this is true of Israel in the wilderness, this is true of Adam coming out of the garden, this is true of Isaiah in his time in Judah, and and the next generation after Isaiah that will be taken into exile, and it's true of us today. In other words, it's always true of God's people. Which is why we can relate to the wilderness generation in 1 Corinthians 10. There's a parallel between us and the wilderness generation. It's because, it's because what you have when you're living between promise and fulfillment, what you have is God's Spirit and God's Word. And, and, and those are essentially intertwined, two, two sides of the same coin. But, but we'll, we'll, we'll stick to the Word here. What you have is God's Word. So, so in the midst of this whole world promise, and fulfillment. You're waiting for it. What you have is the Word of God. And what's to be your attitude toward the Word of God? Well, actually trembling at the Word of God. Now, that of course would mean that we care what it says, that we search it out, that we value it highly, that we consider it more important than money or gold or any anything else that we might want. But But it's actually even further than that. It's not just, you know, my Bible is the most important thing I have. Although, really, every Christian should think that way. But it's more than that. It's it's a trembling at the Word of God. So that that when God's Word is opened before us, when we're sitting under the preaching of the Word of God, we're, we're, we're genuinely, you know, attentive and concerned. Because... This is what I have. This is Jesus. Jesus even talks in this way. This, this is my my food and, and drink. This is this. Man doesn't live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. That's what we live on. That's what sustains us in the midst of. That's what guides us. That's what gives us direction and comfort and hope. But it's it's really our our life in the wilderness between promise and fulfillment, and so. It's no accident that we see this, just like so many things in Isaiah, and I've tried to highlight them when they come up, we see this refracted in the New Testament as well in two important ways. First of all, we see these exact terms used to describe the Messiah. So you say, who's the one who really exemplifies this? Who I need to attach myself to? Well, Christ. But then also, we see Stephen pick up on this, and this is is Isaiah's way of understanding the spiritual life, because it's ultimately true of Christ, Um, Stephen Stephen grabs these terms when he's about to be executed as well. grabs this verse and quotes it directly. Um, That this is what the Lord is looking for. And and that that makes sense because it is both clear direction to us and also a clear pointer to us that we be um, united in closer and closer communion to Jesus Christ. Now... Let me, um, let me just read a couple more verses and then I know you have to, you all have to go. Um, So here's what, here's the note on which we are, we are left. Um, Verse 22 of Isaiah 66. Look at the goal for God's people. Ultimately, what do we do now? We tremble at his word. We're humble and contrite in spirit. That's how we approach the Lord. But what's going to happen in the end? Verse 22. For as the new heavens and the new earth that I will that I make shall remain before me, says the Lord, so shall your offspring and your name remain from new moon to new moon and from Sabbath to Sabbath. All flesh shall come to worship before me, declares the Lord. And so the ultimate goal of life, the ultimate thing that we're headed for, The ultimate thing that the Israelites are headed for, the the believing ones, and and what we're looking forward to as well, is just that. That we're gathered before God, worshiping Him in the beauty of His holiness. What do we do now? Tremble at His word. What do we do then? Well, we worship Him just from from week to week on into eternity. And so He's moved them from being faithless and from their worship being unacceptable to Him. Because remember, that was one of the reasons... They were so faithless. Their worship was just meaningless. To to actual true worship that's accepted by him and that is fulfilling uh, to them as well. All right, let's pray. Lord, we are grateful once again for your word. What a book this is and uh, there's so much for us to learn from it. So much for us to attend to. Please, please work in us so that we would be marked off as people who are humble, contrite in spirit and who tremble at your word. Father, make this true even in the next hour as we come to worship you in in the way in which you've instructed us to. And we ask for this in Jesus' name. Amen.